Okay, let's go to our scripture, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 9 through 12, as we continue uh, to go through the book of 1 Thessalonians. So this is Paul speaking to the church at Thessalonica, and certainly the Lord speaking to us. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers through Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word. So, I want to talk a lot about work in this sermon. And uh, this is a dangerous thing to talk about because work to many is a four-letter word, isn't it? Work is a chore. And uh, tomorrow the work week starts and you may be uh, like one of those uh, seven dwarves. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Uh, And work is something that you put up with. It's something you know you have to do, uh, but you do it begrudgingly. And uh, work has somehow over the years become divorced from your Christianity. In other words, I worship the Lord on Sunday, but when I enter into my workplace, it's like I put my faith or I put my Christian life, I put it on the shelf and I go to work and I keep my head down and I do my thing. Uh, and then I uh, you know, come back and then I pick up that mantle again. I have not always been a pastor uh, I, so I, my work is a spiritual work, but I have been in the workplace as well uh, in a variety of different business development jobs in the secular world, quote unquote. And I remember a lot of the challenges that occur uh, in terms of bringing my faith into the marketplace and also uh, at times being able to see the relevance of where is God in the midst of my work. And that's what this sermon and this passage is all about. If you'll remember, this chapter started out with the reality and the truth that we are to live in such a way as to please God. Now, I thought we already pleased God. I thought it was through the grace of Jesus Christ that that, uh, God was proud of us, and that's absolutely true. God is pleased with us for who we are because of the righteousness of Christ. And as such, he has adopted us. I'm speaking to believers, if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, he's adopted us into his family. And now, as his sons and daughters, he calls us to live out his faith. And we have the opportunity to reciprocate, to show love back to him, to put a smile on his face by how we choose to live, by how we choose to love, and by how we choose to work. So last week, we talked about sex. And now we are talking about work. Because work, which is one of the things that we do for a large chunk of our day, whether inside the home or outside of the home, is a vehicle by which we can bring a smile to the face of God. Since God wills work, let us choose to make work our worship. It's really the point of this entire sermon. Since God wills work, let us choose to make our work Worship. We're going to look at three specific purposes of work. What are the purposes that God has given us for work? Number one, the purpose of work is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I'm going to unpack that. Number two, another God-ordained purpose of work is to provide for our needs and for the needs of others. 
And then finally, the third purpose of work is to advance his gospel. Since God wills work, let us make our work worship. Well, let's begin with point number one, to glorify God and enjoy him forever is the main purpose of work. And when we open the Bible, we open the Bible looking at God working, right? As God speaks, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it refers to these days or ages or times of specific work that God is doing. God speaks and the universe slowly comes into being, right? He makes the day and he makes the night. He makes the, the sun and the moon and the heavenly bodies. He makes, he makes the, uh, the uh, land and he makes the sea and then he makes the creatures. And every day he looks back upon his work, his creation, and he says it is good. You know, when God is working, it doesn't look much like work, does it? It's a beautiful thing to see God creating. And from that word creation, we see the work creative. And so work, at its core of what it was meant to be, is not work at all. But a creative act in the template uh, that we see of God creating universe, creating something from nothing. And God continues on, and on that last, on the sixth day, we see that God creates man. Verses 1, uh, 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's very interesting that the last uh, creative act that God does is to make man and woman in his image. And then what is it that God does? He rests. Or he ceases, I prefer that word, he ceases from his work. So very interest, interesting that he, with his last function of work, of creative work, he makes man and then he rests, but he makes man in his own image. After the capstone of creation, why does he do that? Well, we know why he does it, because he gives a mandate to man and woman. Be fruitful and multiply, God says and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God gives man a mandate and a mantle. He gives him the responsibility of continuing on the work that he has done in bringing the universe and in bringing planet earth into being. It's Psalm 115, 16 that says, The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. And so God gives man this mandate to continue on this work. In fact, he makes us in his image so we would have the powers and the responsibility and the position necessary to continue on in this mold of creative work. And he rests and so what God has done in the entire cosmos, he delegates a small part of that cosmos to us, planet Earth. And we're almost as if we were little gods, if you will, learning what to do, what our Heavenly Father does, did and does all of the time. There's a purpose behind this mandate. Why does God want us to do this? Why didn't God simply create a bunch of robots? 
Remember Mickey and the story of the broomstick, where the wizard and the magician's apprentice, and, and uh, he gives Mickey responsibilities, and Mickey goes ahead and says, I don't want to do this work, and so he um, does a little incantation, and here come the broomsticks coming along. If God wanted more things to be done in the earth, why didn't he just create a bunch of broomsticks, a bunch of robots? In fact, in some senses, he did that with all of the animals, didn't he? Because the animals continue to create and to work, and the work that they do brings glory to God. Have you ever seen an ant colony where they have a, bi, you know, a bisection of it and it's in the glass and you see the industriousness of these ants as they're organized somehow in a way that we don't understand? Or if you go out in your backyard in the morning and you see glistening with the dew a beautiful spider's web that's been created that brings glory to God. Or the industriousness of a beaver who shapes his environment and creates this dam and this, this intricate uh, organization and this den. Why didn't he just create the animals and stop with there? Because we are not like animals in one specific way. We have the capacity and the power to choose why we work, for whom we work. For animals, it's simple instinct. They just go ahead and they do what is in their programming to do. To be sure, we also must work. But the choice we have is for who or for whom we will work. See, the reason God has created us in His image and delegated us this responsibility is that we might choose to work for Him. We are, as one has called us, a portrait of another. We are made in His image. And so our relationships are meant to reflect the image of God. Our conduct, in terms of our personal conduct, is meant to reflect the image of God for His glory. And if so, certainly our work as well. So when we go to work, whatever it is that we do, each of us has the opportunity to choose. Will I spend these eight or nine or ten hours today choosing to glorify Him or ourselves? For mankind will surely glorify someone. Man continues to be industrious. If anyone's ever driven into New York City and you see the, the skyline of Manhattan and you see the industriousness of mankind, man builds and man works. But the sadness is all too often what mankind is building is glory for himself. No, we can choose who it is that we glorify in our work. And how do we do that? We choose with, first of all, our intention. Our intention. As I walk into my office, as I walk onto the factory floor, as I start to make the lunches for my children, uh, as they head off to school, I can choose, who am I doing this for? Am I doing this just because I have to and I... No, I mean, there's something deeper that we're meant for with work than simply that. It's with my intention I can choose to elevate God in my work and in doing so, elevate my work. 
And when I choose the intention of glorifying him in my work, something happens. The quality of my work goes up. Because all of a sudden, my work goes from work to an offering. As much as a burnt offering or a sacrificial offering or a thank offering or any of those types of offerings, that's what work is, isn't it? It's an offering to God. The quality of my work goes up when I decide that it is a gift that I want to give to God. Therefore, the essence of our work as humans must be that it is done in conscious reliance on God's power as a conscious quest of God's pattern of excellence and deliberate pursuit of God's glory. I think that's why this passage says that one should aspire to live quietly. What does it mean by that? I think it's saying that one should aspire to live not to draw attention to oneself, but rather to draw attention to God who gives the energy and the capacity and the motive and desire to work. See, what is it that, about humble people? They don't think uh, less of themselves. They just think about themselves less. There's someone more central in your workplace, even though people can't see him. It's the Lord. Here's the reality, my friends. If we're not working for the Lord, we're actually stealing. Well, how can you say that? Well, the reason I can say that is because every single resource we're using in our work ultimately comes from Him, right? Every single breath that we're taking, every single use of our muscles comes from Him, ultimately for His glory, for His purposes. And so in the end, I'm either working or I'm stealing. No, the purpose of work is to glorify Him, but it's also to enjoy Him forever. This is Ecclesiastes 5.12, which says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the sure fit of the rich will not let him sleep. It's not talking about someone who is well off to do just in themselves, but rather one who hoards for themselves rather than is rich toward God. Something sweet about getting up and deciding, Lord, I'm going to give you this day. Whatever it is that I'm going to do, whether on the factory floor or in the retail establishment or as I ponder and peruse the spreadsheets and try to figure out where that money went and putting it all in its proper place. When I decide to do it for the Lord, at the end of the day, what you will discover as you lay your head down on your pillow is that sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the sure fit of those who hoard for themselves will not let him sleep. I think that's why the Lord's pronouncement is so powerful at the end of each day, right? And the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and what did he say? It's good. It was a good day today. One of my favorite people who I've talked about before, who I think did one of the best jobs I've ever seen of mating work and worship, was the humble friar, Brother Lawrence. I'm talking about Brother Lawrence more and more. Take note. This is what Brother Lawrence said. He wasn't the, smart, he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. And so Brother Lawrence was put in the kitchen 
to go ahead and, uh, and to, uh, to feed the monastery, if you will. He was the ancient example for Ignacio in the movie Nacho Libre, a hit at our house. But this is what Brother Lawrence discovered, or I should say Brother Lawrence decided in his kitchen at the monastery. In the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees in the chapel. Make it your study before taking up any task, Brother Lawrence advises, to look to God, be it only for a moment. O Lord of pots and pans and things, since I have no time to be a great saint by doing lovely things, or watching late with thee, or dreaming in the dawnlight, or storming heaven's gates, make me a saint by getting meals and washing up the plates. Warm all the kitchen with thy love and light it with all thy peace. Forgive me all my worrying and make my grumbling cease. Thou hoosted love to give men food in room or by sea, accept the service that I do, I do it unto thee. Have you divorced your work from your worship? Maybe it's time to reunite them again, to re-examine the purpose of why I'm getting up and going and doing this in the first place. You may say to me, Carlos, but I hate my work. I want to suggest to you that the issue with your work may not be your work at all. It's the reason for your work. It's what's behind it. What are you making and for whom? This is something that I made recently. This is a dolphin that I carved out of soapstone, actually. It was the first thing that I've ever made using sort of power tools and so forth. And it looks pretty nice. I thought I did, you know, I did a pretty good job with it. But when it started off, it looked something like this. This became this. See, when I looked at the stone, I could see that there was something inside of it, a kernel inside of it of beauty that needed to be brought out. I think it's the same way with our work. Do we see just the block of stone? Or do we see the beauty of an offering that we can give to the Lord? Because when you decide to do that, when you decide to make your work and to give it as an offering to the Lord, the Lord makes it beautiful in its own special way. Since God wills work, let us make work our worship. Brings me to my second point, that work not only is a way to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but it's also a way to provide for needs. Now, one of the things we need to understand is before the fall, man lived in a garden where God provided his food on the trees. Remember, he set forth this banquet. You can eat from any of these different trees. There's just one that you can't. See, that's why the essence of work is not the sustenance of life. Because God gave himself as the one to be the sustainer of life. Adam and Eve were free to pursue the creative pursuits that God gave him. Work is not a four-letter word. But work became a four-letter word when man and woman rejected God. They rejected the guidance of God. 
They rejected the providence of God and they said, thanks, but no thanks. And God subjected them to the very thing that they chose, which was self-reliance. Right? If you want to be self-reliant, okay. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. See, the curse of the fall is not that we have to work. The curse of the fall is that we struggle with weariness and frustration and calamities in our work, in toil, and that we must also produce our food to keep ourselves alive. Now, you may say to me, well, Christ has uh, reigned victorious over death on the cross. Hasn't he lifted the curse from us? And the answer is yes, but he has not yet put every enemy under his feet, has he? We still experience the pain of going through old age and getting older and dying and death. He has not yet put every enemy under his feet, and that includes work, work and creation. And so in the meantime, God has given us work to provide for our needs, But the important thing to understand is that God is in the business of redeeming work, right? Listen to some of these important verses that relate to work. In John 6, Jesus said, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Consider the lilies of the field or the birds of the air. They do not labor or toil or spin, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. God takes care of his own children. He all too often uses a vehicle of work, but we don't have to worry like before in self-reliance because our God is with us and he is our father. Continues on in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, where Jesus says, come unto me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. We can find rest and rejuvenation and recreation even in the toil of work because God is in the business of redeeming work and one day he will put that enemy of the curse entirely under our feet, under his feet and thus under our feet. Finally, God rescues us from the vanity of work. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight tells us, therefore, Let nothing move you, uh, children. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not useless. It's not pointless. It's not another day, another dollar. Everything done for the Lord is remembered. And it's not in vain. See, the coming of Christ does not mean that we can now right away return to the paradise and pick fruit in someone else's garden. That was the mistake they were making at Thessalonica. And this is related to the coming of the Lord. In fact, around that time, there was a bishop that said, the Lord is going to come next year. And because of that, the church believed him, and many of them quit their job, sold all their, uh, sold, uh, their assets, gave them away, or, or, or used them poorly, and sure enough, the Lord did not come the next year, and lo and behold, There's a host of people in want because of this bad teaching. 
And Paul has to straighten them out, right? For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Notice, is not willing to work. These are difficult employment times, by the way. Trying to find a job right now is, not, is very challenging. But he's not speaking to people who aren't working. He's speaking to people who aren't willing to work. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, and so on and so on. No, God gives us work as a gift and a necessity to meet our needs and also to meet other needs. We are supposed to use work to care for those around us. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul speaks to children and grandchildren regarding aged widows. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his own family, he has disowned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In Acts 20.35, Paul, speaking of his own labor, says, In all things I have shown you, that by so toiling one must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Finally, Ephesians 4.28. Paul says, don't steal, but work. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may be able to give to those in need. The work that we do is not only something that we can do to honor God and to enjoy Him, but to take care of our needs and also to take care of the needs of others around us. For it is more blessed to give than to receive. Yes, work is a gift, but it's also a necessity. And so we must put it in its proper place. We live in an interim time, my friends. Are you frustrated with your work? It's important to understand that work has not been fully redeemed. That one day work will be as it is supposed to be. And so make sure not to place uh, expectations on work that your work can, cannot meet in this age, but rather to work and be faithful, understanding that God ultimately is my provider. God has provided us with a Savior who gives us spiritual food, and God will provide us with the physical means to take care of ourselves and the responsibility to take care of others around us. Since God wills work, let us make work our worship. This brings me to my final point, that God gives work so that we can share the gospel. In verses 11 and 12, Paul admonishes the Thessalonians to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And when we work, we rub shoulders with those who are not uh, believers and not followers of Jesus Christ. We rub against them. And they watch the quality of their work and how we work. And from that, they can decipher a whole lot about us and about the God we serve. Think of numerous examples in the Bible of by the work of the particular person, uh, God was honored and glorified and lifted up. Whether it be Daniel 
and the way that he was an administrator and advisor under various kings. Joseph, in the midst of difficulty, as he continued to work hard under each a situation and administration, people marveled because the Lord was with him. Or Nehemiah, who set his face to do God's work for God's purposes, for God's gain. And through that, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, were rebuilt. If we do our work in reliance on God's power, according to his pattern of excellence and thus for his glory, we will build bridges for the gospel so that people can cross over and be saved. Notice that last phrase, to walk properly before outsiders and not to be dependent on anyone. If there's anyone in this world that can experience some kind of contentment, it should be the Christian, right? Because if we have Jesus Christ, we have everything we need. We have love, we have care, we have all of his resources to meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. But the world can't understand that. The world will never be satisfied. It will never say enough because it is, it is never enough until you have Jesus. But in 1 Timothy, the Bible says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Have you found contentment in Christ? Look for it there, my friends, for you will not find it in your work. Your work is never enough. It wasn't intended to be so. Rather, our work is intended to be a signpost pointing people to the glory of God. I wanted to give my final illustration. This is a fire brick. It was in a furnace that I built that didn't quite go the way I thought it would be. And I could have left it to the side, but I decided I wanted to make something beautiful out of it. So I carved, and I carved, and I carved. And this is what I made. I don't know if you speak Hebrew or not, but this says Yahweh in Hebrew letters across of it. It's a beautiful piece of stone that's been polished. And when anyone looks at it, and it's on my mantle place, they can say, what does it say? It says the name of God. In the same way, I think that we're just like this. And our work is just like this. It can either be a burnt out stone set aside, left for nothing, or it can be carved into something beautiful, something that points to someone other than ourselves. When Johann Sebastian Bach ever finished, uh, finished, uh, ever finished one of his works, he always wrote SDG on it. Soli Deo Gloria. All for the glory of God. Whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, at the end of every day of work, you're going to sign your work with something. 
the end of your career, when it's time to put up the shoes, you're going to sign your work with something. If it's for the glory of God, people cannot help but sit up and take notice. So this thing that God has given you, this skill or tool or talent or position or opportunity, God has put you there for a purpose that you might share the gospel in the way that you live, the way that you love, the way that you work. Since God wills our work, let our work be our worship and let the world sit up and notice. For our God is a great God and every knee will bow and every tongue in the end will confess. Let us be a part of making our Lord's name famous through our work. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our work. Jesus, through your perfect life lived and through your substitutionary death on the cross, the work has been finished of being righteous before you. But you tell us as your children to live and work in such a way that pleases you. God, let us recognize that we can use our work to glorify you and in doing so, enjoy you forever. Let us recognize that you give us work to meet our needs and to meet the needs of others. And so let us not work in vain. And finally, God, let us do our work so as to sign your name on it so that uh, as the world sees and as the world marvels and the world asks, we can tell them about the great God who rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in Christ's name.